At the Foot of the Cross, a monthly podcast from the Catholic Bishops' Conference of England and Wales. Well, hello everyone and welcome to At the Foot of the Cross. Now, always dips towards the end of the month. I promise we'll get this back towards the middle of the month. But for now, we really do stand on the threshold of Holy Week and of course Easter afterwards. Now, before we carry on, we did hear the news at the end of March that Pope Francis was in hospital with a respiratory infection. So obviously we're praying very much for his recovery and his ongoing health. Some other things to bring up before we get into the podcast proper. The retirement of Bishop Tom Williams, who's obviously a retired auxiliary in the Archdiocese of Liverpool. And sadly, we learnt about the death of Bishop David McGough since we last podcast, retired auxiliary Bishop of Birmingham. Now, I'm joined by Canon Chris Thomas, who's with me, sitting opposite. How are you, Canon Chris? Very well, thank you, James. Nice to see you. Yes, we did. We had the death of a bishop, sadly, which is always a sad thing, and the retirement of another. That's the the circle of life in that sense, isn't it? Well, it it is. Bishops are asked to submit their resignations when they reach the age of 75, and Bishop Tom Williams reached that milestone in his life in in February, and uh, he will now uh, go into retirement. Although, knowing Bishop Williams as I do, there'll probably be very little change, just a little less uh, formal responsibility. But he's been a great pastor in the church in Liverpool, and uh, much loved by the people there. As he said to me once, uh, apart from the time when he was studying in Lisbon, he's never been outside of a sort of 10-mile radius of where he was born. So uh, he's a great son of the city and indeed was given the freedom of the city recently as well uh, as as an honour from uh, the city to his ministry there. So I hope that Bishop Williams has a very uh, long and fruitful retirement. It was very sad news about Bishop David McGough. Um, Bishop David was a, a great pastor He studied at St. Mary's College, Oscott, and then went on to the English College in Rome to do uh, uh, his theology and then went back to get a higher qualification in sacred scripture. And his love of the scriptures pierced everything that he did. I can remember many years ago when I was in my own diocese, he gave us a day of sort of, well, training. It was ongoing formation day on the four songs of the suffering servant in the prophecy of Isaiah, which we'll read this Holy Week. Um, and, And it was a most superb day. It was one of the most fruitful days that I can remember because his in-depth knowledge of the servant songs was absolutely wonderful. But I always liked him because he was very pragmatic. You know, he was a good pastor. He, you know, he loved the people. He went about his duties in a very unassuming manner. But whenever he spoke at our plenary meetings, he always had something worthy to say. You know, it was something you listened to. Yeah, and our auxiliaries, they, they, you know, they, they tend to have perhaps that freedom to be a bit more visible, a bit more amongst the people, don't they? They do, and, and I think that they are helpers uh, to the diocesan bishop in his ministry, and so it's a very important part of the structure of the church that we have is uh, in the larger diocese to have these auxiliary bishops. So we pray for Bishop David and for his family who mourn his loss, and for the whole of the Archdiocese of Birmingham, who will feel this very acutely, even though he was retired and he lived up in T in Staffordshire. You know, uh, he was still very much uh, active. I saw him last October was the last time I saw him when uh, we celebrated Mass together in Kenilworth. So uh, it was very, very lovely. 
absolutely. And of course, we pray for the Pope. There's there's not a huge amount of information, but we know he had a scheduled visit to hospital and then was found to have a respiratory infection. So, of course, we keep the Holy Father in, in our prayers at this time. Oh, yes. I mean, it's, it's, it's our duty daily to pray for the Holy Father, but particularly now that he's in hospital. And at the, on, the, on the threshold of, of Holy Week, Cardinal Sandry is going to celebrate the uh, Palm Sunday liturgies at St. Peter's. But we do pray the Lord will be close to him in this time and that the work of, of those charged with his medical care will bring him safely back to fullness of health. And much to come in April and May, of course. We have the bishops meeting in plenary towards the end of April and the coronation of King Charles III on the 6th of May. And, of course, we're praying for the king, aren't we? Yes, it's really important for us to, to pray for the king. Many people say, you know, that he, you know, he's been a king in waiting for so many years. I mean, the incredible reign of his mother, our late Queen Elizabeth, for 70 years was, was quite remarkable. And he comes to the throne later on in life. Even though that, that may be so, the responsibilities of monarchy are, 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 are no less uh, for an older person than they were for the Queen when she assumed the throne at 26. Absolutely. So it's important that we, uh, that we pray for the King. And indeed, we'll be distributing um, prayer cards uh, for the coronation as we draw closer to the time. And the bishops have asked that we have three days of prayer for the king from the Wednesday, the Thursday, culminating in the Friday evening where possible for a special mass to be said for his intentions the night before the coronation so that uh, we can ask the Lord to be with him as he takes up the fullness of his duties. And is that in our parishes? How's that working? Yeah, the, it, it, the, the three days of prayer uh, are basically, I think every Catholic will be asked to pray for the king and parishes may want to do something special if they want to. I mean, that, that there's, there's no obligation on this. But uh, if possible, that this particular mass could be celebrated for the king on the Friday before his coronation. And of course, the coronation day will be a, a, a wonderful occasion. I mean, it'll be the first coronation we've had in 70 years in this country. You know, it's an important time for us to celebrate in community to celebrate the fact that we do have a new monarch and uh, and his queen, uh, Queen Camilla, will be with him at his side as he takes on his responsibilities in the fullness of the monarchy. Quite historic and extraordinary, I must say. But we have something extremely sacred to us that we are entering Holy Week. That's right. And I think that uh, Holy Week is a really, well, I know it's, it's, it's the sort of culmination, the, the sort of high point of our liturgical year. It's a time that we should commit Time too. I know that people have a lot of pressures with work and everything else, but entering into Holy Week is something that it's, it can be a little bit like a retreat in daily life uh, because of the way in which the week is structured. I remember once before I was a priest, I couldn't get because of travelling. I can remember distinctively I was working over in Amsterdam and I had to get back to England and I, I couldn't get to neither Maundy Thursday or Good Friday because of my travelling commitments, I felt really bereft. And I think that if you sort of come to Mass on Palm Sunday and then turn up at Easter Sunday, you've missed the opportunity for a wonderful reflection on the heart of what we believe. Palm Sunday is when we remember the entrance of Jesus into his city, into Jerusalem. Palms and acclamations and, and, and songs of joy but suddenly at the end of that Mass, it sort of turns slightly because we read the Passion and we feel the pain of the entering into the Passion Tide. We read Matthew's Passion this year, which is a, the longest of the Passion accounts, but also a, a very, very gritty Passion account. And then as we move through the week, one of the important moments is, and it varies from diocese to diocese because of the way which our churches are structured, is the Mass of Chrism. Now, the Mass of Chrism is where the bishop blesses 
the holy oils that are used, the oil of catechumens and the oil of the sick, and consecrates the sacred chrism. The reason it's important is because it's a wonderful example of what the church truly is. With the bishop surrounded by his ministers, surrounded by his people, it's the church in microcosm gathered in the cathedral. And the priests will reaffirm their commitment to the priesthood in the presence of the bishop. And then the bishop will will consecrate and bless those holy oils, which are used in all of our parishes throughout the year. And the sacred chrism particularly, I always think that the sacred chrism is really important. When I was a curate at Nottingham Cathedral, it was my job to make the perfume for the sacred chrism. And and, uh, I always felt that it was really important to get something very pungent because when I used to baptise children, I used to anoint their heads with the sacred chrism. I I was very much of the the Henry Cooper school of anointing, you know, splash it all over because I used to like to say to the families, you know, afterwards when you're having your celebration, pass baby around and have a smell of his head to smell that fragrance, that beauty of the spirit now dwelling within the child. And of course, chrism is used whenever anybody or anything is consecrated to God's service. So we have the baptism, we have it at our confirmation. My hands were anointed when I was ordained a priest. But altars and churches are anointed with chrism as well, designating them as special places, as places set apart for the worship of God. So the gathering of the community, of the whole community of the church in each diocese around the bishop at those chrism masses is a very important symbol of the life of the church today. So we then move on from the chrism mass into the sacred triduum. And the sacred triduum begins in the evening of Holy Thursday or Maundy Thursday. Again, it's a celebration of the Eucharist and the institution of the Eucharist, but it, it, it has an, an, an ending in darkness because Unlike any other Mass, we're not dismissed. We move, taking the Blessed Sacrament with us to a garden of repose where we sit and watch and pray as the Lord enters into his Passion. And before that, the priest will have washed the feet of parishioners. That is a symbol of his service to the people in his parish, just as our Lord washed the feet of his disciples. So it's a remembrance of these things. And the other thing which is really important at that time is we receive the oils that have been consecrated by the bishop. But we also receive the alms, the Lenten alms of the people. Those gifts, that monetary offering is to be applied to the poor, which is so important because we must always remember that the poor are with us and that the whole of our Christian service is about the proclamation of the gospel and the service of charity. All of this is tied into this wonderful liturgy that begins with a wonderful celebration where we ring the bells at the Gloria, where we sing uh, wonderful hymns, Eucharistic hymns, and then it becomes very quiet and very contemplative and we enter into the darkness of the night because that is the night of betrayal and we wait and watch until midnight in our churches. And then we have Good Friday. And Good Friday is the starkest of the days in the church. I always feel on Good Friday that there's a wound because our tabernacles are empty. The abiding presence of the Lord has been removed from the tabernacles. And so we enter into the church and there's nothing of adornment. And it's as if we're we're bare before God. And then we have the liturgy of Good Friday. We read the Passion of St. John, a very moving, wonderful passion. And then we do the most profound thing. We creep towards the cross. And we reverence the cross as the symbol of our redemption, Christ who hung upon the cross to redeem the world. Um, And it's really important that when we do that, we realise what we're doing, because when we look at crosses, it's easy just to think, oh, it's just Jesus on the cross. But, you know, to think about the reality of it and that this was done for us. 
This was done so that we can enter into the fullness of life with him. And I always think what's important to use the name of this podcast, At the Foot of the Cross, what's important is that at the foot of the cross were Mary and John. And Jesus says, woman, behold your son, and then behold your mother. They were there when his side was pierced, and out came water and blood. For me, that's the beginning of the sacramental life of the church, that Mary and John, as an image of the church at the foot of the cross, are witnesses to the life-giving things that, that we have, the blood of Christ and the water of baptism, which is what we then move into with the Easter Vigil, the mother of all vigils, as the church says. Wonderful symbolism again. We gather outside our churches with fires where we light our Easter candle, the Paschal candle, which symbolises the risen Christ. And it's a candle that still bears the wounds. You know, Jesus, when he appeared to his disciples, still bore the wounds, but they were now glorious wounds. They were transformed by the power of the resurrection into eternal wounds that bring forth life. And so the light is taken into the darkened church. And it's amazing. I was at Westminster Cathedral last year and in that vast cavernous dark space with no lights on, with one single candle, when everybody lit their own candles, the light rose and it was a wonderful thing to see. And as the exalted, the great hymn of praise that's sung at the foot of the candle says, you know, it's a flame divided yet undimmed. And so what we have is that light shining in the darkness, Christ rising in power. And then we move into the liturgy of baptism, where those who are to be baptised and confirmed uh, receive the sacraments of Christian initiation. But we too are sprinkled with holy water. It's the sprinkling to remind us of our own commitment to baptism, our own commitment to mission, to be disciples in the world. And then we are nourished by the new bread, the new leaven, as St. Paul says in one of his great canticles, you know, Christ our Passover is sacrifice for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven of malice and wickedness, but with new leavened bread of sincerity and truth. And that's what we're being nourished with, that wonderful new life that Christ gives. And then we dance out. We dance out because there are 50 days of joy ahead of us. Ten more than Lent, which is always a good thing. And during that time, I would encourage everybody, if they can, to read the readings for Mass every day, particularly to read the first reading because we read the Acts of the Apostles and we hear about how that early church took what they had received themselves and took it to themselves so that they could share it with others. And that's what we've got to do. This is, um, this is what it means to be disciples with a mission in today's world because the mission is the same. Having received the sacraments in our hearts, it takes us forward out into the world to proclaim the good news of Christ and to draw people to him. If you think about it, what we've had recently in our readings, especially the readings on Sundays, we've had those three great catechetical Gospels. And in each of them, the encounter with Christ brings life. The encounter with Christ brings a deepening of faith. The encounter with Christ brings mission into the world so that we can actually proclaim the good news that we ourselves have received. So, James, if I could say to everybody, you know, don't go on Palm Sunday and then on Easter Sunday. Try and make this a retreat in daily life and try and enter into the symbolism, into the prayers, into the readings, into the wonderful story of salvation that we are living out. Because by doing that, we really will be able to celebrate the beauty of our Easter life. Very well said. Two little things. Now, Reading Acts in Easter was a series that we recorded, so we can re-release that as you've advised us that to experience those readings. And very moved I was, even editing them, let alone anything else. So I'm looking forward to that. 
Of course, people can follow the stations of the cross, can't they? That wonderful meditation, profound, solemn meditation. Most Fridays in Lent, I think people have been able to do that. But obviously on Good Friday, we have the stations as well. So we shall put our stations out online in digital form uh, for people to follow. And if I could, can just put a plug, there was a book published a few years ago, which I find a wonderful meditation on the Stations of the Cross, published by Sarah Maitland, who is a writer, illustrated beautifully as well. This is a, a book, a slightly longer meditations on each of the stations. But if you've got time to read that, particularly the meditations, there's some wonderful insights into that pilgrimage, that journey, that way of the cross that Jesus walked himself. And it gives us something more to reflect on in our lives. I'm not going to sort of give spoilers, but my favourite is Veronica. Ah, wiping the brow. Do you know what? Every few years we change up our stations of the cross just to, you know, we've got we've had the Liguri stations naturally. So maybe that's one for us to revisit. We could, you know, contact the publisher and see if we could perhaps collaborate. It would certainly be a good thing to do. They're, as I said, they're longer meditations. They're not the sort of short, short ones that we would do in the parish. But they're something that you can sit with and chew over because I just think that they give you a deeper insight into what's happening at each of those stations. Well, you know what? I might grab 14 of our bishops and see if they'll help facilitate such a thing. Marvellous. Good recommendation. Thank you so much for helping us enter into Holy Week, something we shall be doing. Next month, as I say, plenty to talk about. Obviously, we've got the bishops in plenary. Yes. And so I do hope you will join us once again so we can get your insight and perhaps look back on that. Very happy to do so, James. Thanks very much. Take care. At the Foot of the Cross, a monthly podcast from the Catholic Bishops' Conference of England and Wales. So, the back half of this podcast is going to be dedicated to migrants and refugees. Reason being, not only is it very topical and very important, but we've released a document called Love the Stranger, a Catholic response to migrants and refugees. This document has 24 principles. It's very good, actually. I highly recommend you look at it. You can get it through our website, cbcew.org.uk. Either search for Love the Stranger or put on the end of that love hyphen the hyphen stranger and you will get to that document. And, of course, our lead bishop for migrants and refugees is Bishop Paul McAleenan, an auxiliary bishop for the Archdiocese of Westminster. We had a little podcast with Bishop Paul at the moment of release and we'll play a bit of that to you now. Thank you very much, James, for the opportunity to speak about this document, Love the Stranger. Everyone is made in the image and likeness of God. From that fundamental principle flows the Church's teachings on men and women and our rights that men and women have and our obligation to them. And our moral duty extends to every person, no matter who they are, whether we have met them or not. In fact, it's summed up in the commandment, that we have from Deuteronomy, Love the Stranger, which is precisely the name of the document, the Mm. title we have chosen for this pastoral document. And it is absolutely correct that every human being is made in the image and likeness of God and is our moral duty to protect and uphold that dignity. And so what do you think are the reasons that people come to the UK? Those reasons are very clearly and well established. People leave their own country due to war, persecution, increasingly because of climate change, and very validly, some people are indeed economic migrants, and they have a right to move to another location so they can provide a better life 
and a better lifestyle for themselves and for their families. Obviously, it's clear that we don't want to see people, humans, dying in the channel. What would we say is, is the response to that particular issue and problem? That is something that we must always keep in mind and we must avoid situations where people are forced to get into small craft and small boats to undertake such a journey. Therefore, there should be provided legal and safe routes, as we have said so often before, so that people will have an opportunity to present their lawful and valid case to the authorities and have it heard in a timely fashion without putting themselves and their families at danger and at risk. I do want to just go back to your experiences. I know you've been to Iraq. I know you've been to Hungary and and seen Ukrainian refugees. So you you can actually talk somewhat about the stories of some of those individuals that, that have found themselves in those very difficult predicaments that you've mentioned. Tell me a bit about your experiences. The experiences can be summed up in the word encounter, and I've had the privilege of being able to encounter those who have experience and have managed to escape from persecution, from war. I've spoken to those who have actually crossed both the Mediterranean Sea and the English Channel in small boats. I'm thinking of particular those from South Sudan and Eritrea. I love recounting the story of the one time when I went to visit a group in northern France, a group of young men on a cold November morning who had slept out overnight in denim clothes. They had built a little fire in a clearing from branches that had fallen from the trees. And whenever they saw us approaching them, we were approaching them with some refreshments, they stepped back from the fire and said, please come closer to the fire. That was a wonderful experience that even though these young men had lost everything, they'd lost their country, they had to flee from their homeland, they hadn't lost hospitality and the ability to welcome themselves. That is one experience. Another wonderful experience which I love to relate is occurred in Napier Barracks, which I visited with the Papal Nuncio almost 12 months ago now. The Papal Nuncio invited these young men in Napier Barracks What would you like, he said. What would you like? Now, one might expect from them to say, oh, what we would like is a house, a car, lots Mm. of money in this country. There was total silence. The nuns who had to ask again, what would you like? And one young man put up his hand and said, I would like to see my mother. And I think that indicates those with whom you are dealing, the asylum seeker, the refugee, the migrant, they have hearts. They have their humanity and they manifest it in the way they treat each other and in how they treat those who come to them. Well, the document Love the Stranger is available now on our website, cbcew.org.uk. Final question. Now, I'm going to draw back to a name, a human, a face, a story, because rarely do we see that when we're, we're talking about this this difficult topic in many ways. But in the foreword that you put together with Bishop Declan Lang, who chairs the Department for International Affairs, you mention explicitly Alan Kurdi, and I'm sure many will, will remember poor little Alan Kurdi, who, the two-year-old Syrian toddler who, whose death sort of stopped us in our tracks a bit when we saw his body on the beach. We remembered, for once, a person, not just a statistic. Now, you, you remind us that every stranger who knocks on the door is an opportunity for an encounter with, with Jesus. So sort of given that we often talk about numbers and statistics, how and why is it important then that we just focus back and bring the human being to the centre of this? 
I will conclude with how I began because every person is made in the image and likeness of God. Each individual has a dignity which must never be undermined and it is the duty of the Catholic and the Christian to promote, to uphold, to defend that dignity and ensure that it is never neglected. And you know what? You, you probably know me by now, so it's a final, final. Last question. How would you like this to be received by Catholics in England and Wales and the wider community? What is so wonderful about this document, I think, is that it provides principles, specific principles, that can be used as one engages in the current political and social context. But it's also a wonderful document on which to reflect because it speaks about so many different areas, the global perspective, which I mentioned, and also it touches on trafficking. It also speaks of the right to migrate, the right not to migrate. So it is a document which can provide very valuable and thought-provoking reflection, and I sincerely hope that the Catholic community and the wider community take the opportunity to read the document to reflect on it and to see in it that in our belief and understanding of humanity, everyone is made in the image and likeness of God, and that is our starting and our concluding point. And sometimes on At the Foot of the Cross, we do have more than one bishop featuring. And that is the case today, because we have Archbishop John Wilson, the Archbishop of Southwark, who, as you may know, has recently launched a social action charity for his diocese, Caritas Southwark. And that's particularly appropriate at this time, of course, when we're talking about migrants and refugees, because we have the Kent Sea Coast in that archdiocese. And Archbishop John Wilson very much chiding with our document, Love the Stranger, talking about the fact that every migrant has a face, a name, a story. Archbishop John Wilson was talking to us about the human behind each refugee and migrant. Dover is in our diocese. A few months ago I visited the lifeboat station at the port of Dover and heard of the incredible work that they have been doing to rescue people who have taken an incredible decision to try and escape persecution, hardship, war in many cases and cross the channel. And this has been a source of great controversy and there are great political issues at stake here which to me really don't face the crucial issue which is we have people before us who are in desperate need. And if we lose sight of the desperate need of the people, we lose sight of our conscience as a country. So it was incredible to hear the testimonies of, of those who work on the, on the lifeboat in Dover. And they simply said, our mission has always been and will always be to save people in danger at sea. We don't ask who they are or where they're from. And I was really, really impressed by that. And they faced a lot of criticism the Lifeboat Association, the RNLI, for this work. And to my mind, they are doing an incredible work, as are the churches and different community organisations that work to welcome and support refugees in that part of the world. So it's really, really important that when we think about the needs of the other, that other has a face, and that other has a name, and that other has a family. That other could be me one day, it could be you one day. And if we lose sight of that, we may as well just give up and stop living. Because if we lose sight of our common humanity, what is the point of being alive? To me, it's absolutely essential that we recognise that we are our brothers and sisters' keeper. 
at the heart of any issue is a person. And if we lose sight of the person, then we begin to work in a way that is inhuman. And that is intolerable. We must always, at the heart, see the person and value and love the person. Our local parishes work in partnership with local refugee groups. And that's very, very important. I think this needs a collaborative approach. It needs people to stand together and it needs people to speak together. And I think the, the, the key response is always to cut through politics. And politics matter, of course they do. But politics have to be at the service of the human person and the dignity of the human person. Politics that isn't at the service of the dignity of the human person is inauthentic. And, of course, there are other considerations in all of this. I appreciate that. I'm not naive. But when a person is in need, the presenting requirement is that we reach out to them. That, to me, is the fundamental truth of the Gospel. That when a person is in need, my response as a Christian, my response as a human being, is to reach out in love and in support. And there will be issues around all of that which will need resolution. They need humane resolution, not simply isolating people or cutting them off or rejecting them or transporting them elsewhere. That doesn't help anybody. Global solutions need countries to speak to each other and they need partnership and they need a compassion that puts into practice real solutions, not simply knee-jerk reactions that seemingly solve a problem at the expense of the dignity of human life. That, to me, is just preposterous. Well, that's it for this At the Foot of the Cross. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you, of course, to Canon Chris Thomas, our General Secretary, who gave us his insightful take on Holy Week. We also heard from Bishop Paul McAleenan, our lead Bishop for Migrants and Refugees, talking to us about that wonderful new publication, Love the Stranger, And thanks as well to Archbishop John Wilson, the Archbishop of Southwark, who talked to us about the realities on his diocesan borders, which includes the Kent coastline. It just remains for me to say I hope you have a very prayerful and moving Holy Week and then, of course, a very happy Easter. And we'll join you again for another At the Foot of the Cross very soon indeed. Bye for now.